I think it's a very hopeful time and I hope people can share that hope. I know it's very difficult in some cases where I understand that, you know, it's a horrible disease to deal with for the patients and their family. But I think, you know, hope is the way forward. People are working incredibly hard to change that hope into tangible results. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Connecting ALS. I am one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson, and I know you're used to hearing from my co-host, Jeremy Holden, at this point, and I promise you will in just a few moments. But I'm excited to have another voice on the line to help set up today's episode. She is a returning guest of the show, but far more importantly, the president and CEO of the ALS Association, thoughtfully leading us down the path towards a world without ALS, Colonite Balas. Hello, Colonite, and welcome back to Connecting ALS. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, nice thanks to, so much. Nice to hear your voice again. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> we thought it would be perfect to have you set the stage for this episode because you are a major part of the work that we'll be discussing coming out of the International Alliance of ALS MND Associations, mm-hmm. of which you are the current board chair. Can you Start by telling our audience a little bit about the important work of the Alliance and your involvement there as board chair. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I have the, just a, it's a privilege really to be the chair of the International Alliance. And I've been in that position for about a year and a half or so now. And I was on the board for about a year prior to that. And what has struck me in my time and in both just being on the board and certainly being as chair is the International Alliance plays a pivotal role in connecting organizations globally. And our, our mission is really to try to curate all of that information, bring people together, make sure that best practices and sharing and looking at what's happening in different places of the world are, are things that other people know about. And when you have an organization that's, that's really focused on that, you can have some tremendous collaboration and different efforts that come out. So that's that's the core, that's the crux of, of what we do. And we, we do that in a whole host of ways. I'm sure you're going to be talking about that throughout this episode. We are, we are. We're really splitting it into three kind of segments. And the first of which was a discussion with Catherine Cummings, who I know you know well, the executive director at yep. the Alliance. We talked a lot about Global Day and advocacy and raising yeah. awareness and, and what raising the profile of ALS and MND has done around the world. Global Day uh, took place just this past weekend on June 21st. And just curious if you, what you saw and and if you were encouraged by uh, some of the messages of uh, inspiration and hope that were shared all over social media. Yeah, it was, it was pretty astounding, I have to say. I, I loved, first of all, what was great is it really doesn't, wasn't just one day because it uh, goes on for 24 hours, but when you looked at our friends in Australia, they started a little bit before, right, just because of the time zone. So Mm -hmm. it actually extended past that 24-hour period. But it was wonderful just to see the different messages, the different postings. I think we got more activity this year than we ever have before. It also coupled with Father's Day, not only in the United States, but also in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. So there was kind of another level or layer there of sentiment that was expressed. And I think over the past few months through the pandemic and and all that's happening around the world, there's been this desire or need for even stronger community. And that's what I saw all over social media 
over that, I would say, 36-hour period, not yeah. just a 24-hour period. So it was really heartening to see. And, and if people haven't had a chance, I'd encourage you to go to, to Facebook or go to the website for the International Alliance for ALS and MND, and you'll see all the different ways people expressed and tried to raise awareness for ALS. Really beautiful. Yeah, we will definitely post links to those social channels in the show notes and that hashtag ALSMND without borders. It was vibrant uh, the past few days and seeing those messages, I think, was heartwarming for a lot of folks. The Alliance really does a ton of incredible work. So let's get into that conversation we had with Kathy Cummings now. We're on the phone today with Catherine Cummings, the executive director of the International Alliance of ALS-MND Associations, which can be found online at alsmndalliance.org. Kathy, thank you so much for being with us on Connecting ALS today. Thank you for having me. So the Alliance has been involved in work all over the world, and it's based in England, correct? It is based in England, but we are truly a global alliance. And the organization has been around since the early 90s, 1992. How long have you been involved with the Alliance, Kathy? I've been at the helm of the Alliance since March of 2019, so just over one year. But I've been involved in the ALS community since my mother was diagnosed in the year 2000 and passed away from ALS in 2005. I was mm. involved on the board of ALS Ontario and ALS Canada prior to joining the Alliance as the executive director last year. One of the reasons we wanted to speak with you this time of year was to talk about Global Day, which just happened this past Sunday, June 21st, and is a day of global recognition for the ALS and MND communities. What can you tell us about how that day went and, and really why it's so important to the communities around the world? Well, this year, of course, was unique because of COVID-19 and living under a pandemic since earlier this year. And the reality was that we really wanted to raise awareness for the entire globe, but we also wanted to amplify the voices of our members in the fundraising sphere. All of our member associations have had to cancel in-person events and move them to virtual, which is a harder fundraising landscape to work in. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's Australia Moves for MND or Raise a Wee Cup of Tea for MND Scotland or the Walk to End ALS in Canada, all virtual events are important. And we're really, really trying at the global level to magnify those. So we created an honor wall on our homepage, which you already mentioned is ALSMNDAlliance.org to showcase all of the virtual events that are happening globally. And I encourage you to go check that out. We're going to leave that on our wall up until the end of July to make sure that everyone gets their 15 minutes of fame. Great. Uh, but really, Global Day is about raising awareness around the world. And in this year, as I say, it's unique that we also want to really amplify those voices of our members and help them with their virtual fundraising campaigns because virtual campaigns can have a real impact the same way that in-person campaigns can. I was struck by a question of consistency and, and what some of the challenges are to create kind of a consistent experience across the globe. Can you speak to, uh, to that a little bit? I certainly can. There really are more similarities than differences across the globe. And I think that that's really important to highlight that. Even though we all exist with different healthcare regimes and different legislative regimes and different political environments, we really, when it comes down to ALS and MND, it is 
very similar no matter where you are, what region of the world you're in. ALS M&D is a global problem and it doesn't discriminate on the basis of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status or region. And there are people living with it all over the world. And the disease impact is felt by families and loved ones in the same way, whether you're in the southern tip of South America or the northern tip of Canada. And so the Global Alliance is very good about trying to level the playing field, if you will, to make sure that the rights of people living with ALS and their families are recognized in a good manner right across the globe. Yeah, well said. Really important to call to mind and call to attention those rights of everyone living with ALS MND around the world. And we're used to seeing your hashtag uh, ALS MND without borders pop up on social media so often. And uh, I know a number of those living with ALS in our region that that use that hashtag and they, they so appreciate being able to be connected mm-hmm. to others uh, that are in their situation. You're always featuring stories from those individuals and their families in different countries. It's a great reminder that we're all in this together. And do you hear from constituents about what it means to them to know that someone in Ireland, someone in Africa, and someone in Alaska, they're all connected? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have a board member, his name's Gort Jan Blanc from the Netherlands, who says he doesn't care if the cure is found in the Netherlands, the United States, Brazil, or Australia, as long as it's found somewhere. Right. And we have, we have to keep that in mind and that it really doesn't matter where the cure comes from or even any known cause comes from. The research that's done worldwide is so important. And you're absolutely right that people want to feel connected, that we're all in the same boat in terms of trying to reach for that cure. And we have to keep in mind that until there's a cure, there is care as well. And the Global Alliance is helpful in this regard because we can benchmark against other countries to reach the best standards of care for all. A good example of the care side of things is looking at voice banking technology, for example. We have an Innovation and Technology Advisory Council at the Alliance that is looking at assistive devices for the entire care journey for people living with ALS. And Mm. there are many silos of voice banking being done in different pockets in the world. And one of the things that this advisory council aspires to is to be able to pull those all together into a matrix of comparison so that we're breaking down those silos and working together towards something that really helps people living with ALS M&D in this regard going forward so that it becomes an easier, more consistent process. If our audience wants to get more involved with the work of the Alliance, Kathy, what's the best course of action for them to take? Oh, there's lots of ways to follow us. You can follow us on Twitter at ALSMND Alliance. You can find us on Facebook at the International Alliance. And you can follow us at on Instagram, which is ALS.MND Alliance. And of course, you can go to our website as suggested earlier, ALSMND Alliance.org. 
So really all social media, our website, and certainly sign up for our newsletter on our website. And then you'll be kept up to date on what all of our members associations are doing every couple of months around the globe. Well, thank you again so much, Kathy Cummings, the executive director of the International Alliance of ALS MND Associations. This is a really enlightening look at your work and what the Alliance does around the world. We appreciate having you on. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our second interview uh, for this episode was with Dr. Gethin Thomas, who oversees the research arm of the MND Association in Australia. And Dr. Mm -hmm. Thomas shared some optimism about the collaborative research efforts happening around the globe. And, and this came on the heels of a recent announcement of a combined research grant award that the ALS Association and IMALS made to brainstorm clinical trials for neuron. The right. more we talk about ALS research in the year 2020, Colonite, the more I'm hearing the word collaboration. Yeah, it, it's essential. There's there's no way that that we're going to solve this disease without working together. And like I said before, you know, our goal at the International Alliance is to bring all of those resources together. So this past year, we had started a scientific advisory committee it's made up of 10 researchers from all over the globe. And they're helping us to not only put out statements and understand the research and then give those statements to our members so that they understand what's happening in research. They're also a conduit to understanding what is happening in different countries and are there collaborative efforts that maybe we can take advantage of or, or we can actually infuse, which I would love to see. We also started what we're calling the ITAC. It's the Innovative Technology Committee. And I know that Gethin in particular is talking about, I think Gethin or maybe Nick is talking about voice banking and different mm. ways that we can look at voice banking. And so we're bringing, again, a collective group of people together globally just to look at technology and what can we be doing there? And are we duplicating efforts? And if we are, let's stop doing that yeah. and start to pool our resources together. So, you know, they always say collaboration is key and it's, it really is. It's how we're going to solve a lot of these issues, and we'll only do that together. Yeah, it's it's always important, and during these times, it seems and feels particularly important. And Dr. Thomas and his research counterparts all over the world are working together to bring us one step closer to treatments each day. So let's hear what he had to say on the subject now. We're on the phone today with Dr. Gethin Thomas, the Executive Director of Research at MND Australia. Dr. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us on Connecting ALS. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you give us a snapshot, the current state of global research and the search for treatments and a cure? I think research is currently in a great place. It's in a, in a very, very hopeful place. There's currently more than 50 clinical trials on, underway in MND. I think uh, the number I heard was closer to 70. And this is really important. MND-ALS is a very heterogeneous disease. So it's pretty likely that there's not going to be one blockbuster drug that is going to cure MND or, or be the, the panacea for all the different aspects of the disease. Thus, we need lots of different approaches. And by having all these different clinical trials, we hope that some of these will come to fruition and produce effective treatments. But hopefully those effective treatments will address different aspects of the disease and so that will allow us to be able to treat people almost like personalized medicine to be able, okay, you've got this form of the disease, you're suffering these symptoms, therefore you can use this treatment A, B, and C. Some of the different therapies are we're targeting the immune system, protein buildup is a big problem in the disease. 
metabolic imbalances that what causes the, uh, the weight loss and muscle wastage, and a lot of interest in the uh, disruptions to RNA processing, which is uh, disrupting cell molecular systems. All these different aspects of disease are all being investigated, and there are clinical trials in process looking at treatments to address these different aspects of ALS. Another cause for hope is the uh, development of platform trials. So there's two main platform trials that are currently underway, one in Europe, one in the US. And these basically uh, have been based upon a cancer um, idea where you use one group of uh, placebo patients, but you then look at several different drugs. So this allows you to basically test drugs in parallel. It reduces the proportion of patients that will have to take a placebo drug, and it really speeds things up to really take drugs through through trials and much quicker than setting up, say, six separate trials. And it's also way more efficient. You use the same infrastructure, therefore you get much better bang for your buck, which is really important in research. And probably the third real aspect of hope I see is the development of what we call ASOs, antisense oligonucleotide therapies. These are basically gene therapy. So uh, most of uh, the listeners are probably aware approximately 10% of MED patients have a genetic form of the disease. So in many of the patients, we've identified exactly what the mutation is or what gene is has been disrupted in these patients. And a big problem in most cases of ALS, we don't actually know what causes the disease. But in these genetic cases, we do actually know or have a, certainly a very good idea that this gene and this pathway are... Um, playing a major role in their disease development. Now there are three drugs in the trial at the moment addressing the three most common genetic mutations in MND. So one drug, a drug called Tofacin, is addressing mutations in the, the uh, gene SOD1. And there's two other genes, two other treatments, one addressing a gene called FUS, another one addressing a gene called c 9 orf 72 and recently, the Tofacin trial, it's called Valor trial, has moved into the phase three, and the results from the phase two data look really, really promising. It's still early days, obviously, we're only uh, moving into phase three, but it's really hoped that these treatments will be the first truly effective treatments that actually will moderate MND to a significant degree. Whether it actually stops in its tracks, we'll have to wait and see, but the early indications are it certainly significantly slows down the disease. So this will be really a demonstration that AMND is not intractable, which is uh, sometimes a fear, and it really can be treated, hopefully then expand out to other treatments and other drugs. Well, it's so exciting to hear you talk about it in that way and describe really the depth at which research is being done and, and how many different ways scientists like yourself are exploring treatment options. And of course, we know that this can't all happen in one place for various reasons. And ALS research is known for being collaborative and inclusive and for sharing findings and data. The Alliance talks a lot about collaboration in ALS research, and we were so used to seeing the hashtag ALSMND without borders. Can you tell us a little bit, Dr. Thomas, about how borders are being removed and collaboration is happening in ALSMND research around the globe? A huge benefit 
of the alliance for those countries that perhaps don't have as well-developed sort of uh, research infrastructure and health systems is they get access to those countries that do. Though sometimes we obviously can't pour money into other countries, we can certainly provide them with really great advice on the best practice. We can also put these countries in in contact with, say, pharmaceutical companies who are interested in in running trials, and that's a huge benefit for those developing nations. We've also allows us to build more local partnerships within the alliance. For us in Australia, we are developing very strong links with an organisation called PACTOOLS, which is a pan-Asian consortium for treatment and research in ALS. So that includes countries like the Philippines, Malaysia, Japan. So those countries in the Pacific Asia region, which obviously being in Australia, we're slap bang in the middle of as well. For me personally, it's also allowed me to develop a really strong network with my counterparts in the UK, the US, Canada and Europe, and as well as South America and, and Asia as well are all members of the Scientific Advisory Council for the Alliance. And that means we can quickly contact each other if we see an issue arising. Recently, there were some problems with the uh, supplier Rilizole, one of the two drugs that is currently approved for treatment for MND. And we could easily ascertain whether it was just a local problem or is this going to be a worldwide problem and something we should really um, try and address very, very rapidly. We're also addressing how we can look at joint funding models for some research projects as well. And... In that, we're specifically looking to see how we can try and support developing countries that don't have strong research programs and what support can we provide to those countries where perhaps they have great resources or great facilities available, but they haven't got that research infrastructure. And how can we try and help those guys uh, get some strong research up and and running? It also helps with a lot of drug trials or international trials go across borders. And by having those links, we can uh, help the pharmaceutical companies make contacts in other countries. And also then we can go to the pharmaceutical companies themselves and say, look, we've got these patients in different countries. Will this help you to run your clinical trial? So just by having that communication network gives us a lot more opportunities to push treatment forward in the end, which is all all we really want to do, you know, basically, it's very simply, all we want to do is we'd all love to be out of a job. You know, we'd love to treatments out there and, and no more requirements for research in a perfect world. Yeah, well said. And it's it's great to hear that level of cooperation and, and, and global collaboration. Of course, we're having this conversation where so many parts of society across the world are being shut down and disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about the impact that that is having on research efforts around the world? There's no doubting there has been an impact at a number of levels. We've been probably a little more fortunate in Australia. The the impact here has been somewhat lessened, but there still has been a significant impact. On clinical trials, certainly in Australia, and I've heard the same in the US and Europe, that the trial centres, the clinicians and the pharmaceutical companies who are running the trials have really worked hard to to keep these running. They've adapted their protocols. They've uh, moved to sort of remote-type monitoring obviously introduce different protocols within the actual clinics when they're seeing patients to try and make sure that most of the trials can keep keep going. Some trials have been easier. We have a copper ATSM trial running in Australia, and that's an oral medicine. So you can, in some cases, they've even been able to mail out the drug to their patients. 
So that makes it a, a, lot, a lot simpler. And then um, obviously some of the follow-up has not been possible when you're doing very sort of, say, intimate but invasive procedures such as meddling breathing capacity, et cetera. That's a lot harder to do that and maintain COVID-safe practice. But they can look at other metrics that, that can run in parallel to that. Some trials have had, have had to be put on hold, things that are sort of perhaps stem cells, or um, even the Valor trial here because it involves spinal injections. There were initially in the initial stages of the COVID pandemic, hospitals were very concerned about capacity, clinical capacity, and they put a hold on this. But these have opened up again now, certainly in Australia, where the burden on the health system is, is considerably decreased now. And basically, as far as I'm aware, most of the trials are up and running here. Lab studies have been very hard hit. Basically in Australia and I think around the world, all the universities and all the medical research institutes basically shut down. Everyone moved into working from home. As you, uh, I'm sure you can imagine, you can't do lab work from home. But that doesn't mean that research stopped completely. The scientists basically switched into planning, grant writing, data analysis mode. And in some ways, I'm sure this will be actually a very productive period because they can actually sit back without the pressures of running experiments and have a good look at their data and see where they can go next. Some studies did keep going. A lot of the very complex or larger animal studies, I think, were maintained, especially those right coming towards the end of their studies, where they'd invested so much into it, they had special dispensation to actually keep those, keep those running with various lab members running rotors, et cetera, to go into the lab to maintain those studies. There's issues with some very high-tech equipment as well, some of the very uh, top-end microscopes and uh, scanning equipment. They're basically not designed to be switched on and off very rapidly. They take a long time to switch off and then a long time to switch back up. So that will have an impact when things do return to whatever the new normal is. And finally, a consequence is going to be funding. Certainly in Australia, and I suspect certainly in the UK and the uh, US, a lot of international students come to these universities and they pay large fees. And those fees subsidise research. So we're already seeing that, that universities are having to lose staff. The budgets for research are being slashed at a lot of universities. And us as a philanthropic association who we rely on donations to fund our research, mm -hmm. we've seen a drop in that as well. Obviously, people are losing jobs. There's a lot of financial pressure on a lot of people and quite understandably, unfortunately, a lot of charitable donations are seen as key expenses. You know, you have to pay your heating bills, you have to pay your mortgage. And so we're expecting to see less money next year. Yeah, the impact of the pandemic on charitable giving around the world is obviously going to be felt for many causes and we're going to have to wait and see how things recover in the months ahead and even in the years ahead as we get back to what we hope will be a return to quote-unquote normal life when this is all over. Uh, in speaking about ALS MND research specifically, many of the families that we work with here in the States will tell us they're encouraged by the progress that is being made, but in some cases they're hearing many of the same things, that we're closer than we've ever been before or that we're continuing to push forward. And that's, it's great, but just hearing from scientists like yourself now, it really does seem like we're getting closer and we are going to have a breakthrough and turn a corner soon. Do you really feel like in the next couple years in the relatively near future, we're going to see a breakthrough? I, I do. I genuinely feel that. I don't want to say definitely, obviously, because, you know, people have been disappointed before. 
but very hopeful. We know what's causing the disease and we know we can address what is causing the disease. Therefore, mm-hmm. you think we'd be able to see a, a great outcome from that. And I think just that first step of showing, I said, is showing that MND is not intractable, that treatments can work, will also hopefully then lead to other drug companies, other pharmaceutical companies going, actually, let's have another look at MND, you know, because that's what we want. We want Biogen, Ionis are the companies that are driving these developments of these gene therapies and their champions and cytokinetics and a couple of other companies are really true sort of champions in the MND drug development. But it'd be great to see some more companies, especially right. the really big, you know, the Mercs and the uh, Lilies, et cetera, to come in there with their, with their fantastic resources and, and see MND as, uh, okay, that is a work a worthwhile investment because unfortunately in the end for drug companies to develop drugs it, it is an investment for them you know mm-hmm. they have to see mm-hmm. there's a, a chance for them to make some money back out of it it'd be great if you know all our charitable donations could fund new drugs from from where to go but we, we can't we don't make enough money to do that i mean you know it costs you know millions and millions and millions mm-hmm. close to billions of dollars to bring a drug to market and it doesn't matter how, how effective your donation drives are, you're not going to raise that much money that has to come from sure. the pharmaceutical companies and the government can also weigh in. But with the number of trials on at the moment, I, you know, I'm really hopeful that as well as the gene therapy trials, some of the other treatments will be developed that will, if not you know, stop and cure the disease, will provide serious relief for patients and, and be able to address some of the symptoms. Another real cause for hope is that the incredible collegiality of the MND community. I mean, I've only been in this role for a year. So last December, I had the opportunity to attend my first uh, MND ALS International Symposium. It was fantastic. How everyone just is working together towards that common common goal of, you know, ending uh, MND ALS, producing great treatments. Yes, there's vigorous debate and everyone's debating the best way to do it. But in the end, it's, it was completely clear that everyone was driving towards that same ultimate goal. And that was across the whole spectrum, not just basic scientists with their different models, people running clinical trials. We had a, an allied health day, so had all the speech therapists and the physiotherapists there, all looking about how they can best look after the patients that we have at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, and how can we make their quality of life better? And, and so that was just really, to me, really, really heartening. And it was quite refreshing having worked mm-hmm. in other areas where perhaps it's a little more competitive and people don't always work as well together. And finally, I think the, the, another great cause of hope is the sheer generosity of everyone involved, the supporters, the donors, the carers. I mean, just have to go online and look on Twitter and see all the different organisations that are all pulling together and all yeah. the people offering messages of support it, it truly yeah. is a, a, a great community and you have to believe that there's such a great community behind it uh, and together with all the different treatments being trialed that good outcomes are on their way well thank you again dr gethin thomas the executive director of research at mnd australia this was a really really thorough and insightful look at some of the research being done in australia as well as through the international alliance of als mnd associations appreciate your time today Thank you for having me on. It's been really great to be able to share my thoughts with yourselves and obviously wider listeners. Always a pleasure to talk about research. 
Our last interview for this episode was with Nick Goldup uh, in the UK. He is the director of care improvement for the MNDA in England. And again, it was fascinating to hear how a cornerstone of ALS care and support is being handled in another part of the world. And I imagine that when the alliance is convening during meetings or conferences or more likely conference calls these days, that continuity of care and best practices and care and support are a big part of the conversation. Have you found that to be true? Oh, by far. And certainly over these past few months, we have been hosting, I think, weekly webinars or member conversations in order to share best practices and have an understanding of the challenges that that all of us have. And we're learning from each other. And we're also learning what, what some of those barriers are in other countries that maybe we can help either through advocacy, through templates, just to make sure that people do get that continuity of care. And that is, it's, that's a very real struggle. And I, you know, I don't want to downplay it, but it is something that a lot of countries really, really are challenged to try to get people either equipment, access to, to physicians and therapies, I know we are, we in the United States have that for sure. And I would say, you know, some countries you ratchet it up 10, 20 fold in the barriers that they face. So that, that too is a really important part of the alliance is how can we help each other maybe remove some of those barriers or even identify things that we haven't even seen as barriers to continuity of care. And that's been a big portion of the conversation, I would say, over the last four or five months. And I have to give a shout out to Nick. Nick sits on, on the board of the International Alliance, which you probably know. Mm-hmm. And he was a catalyst to trying to get this technology committee together because of some of the work that they're doing over in the UK. So I just want to give him a, a big thank you for that. It's a really exciting time right now. It is. It is. And I'm sure Nick will appreciate that shout out. So many of the folks involved with the Alliance deserve a shout out. A lot of really wonderful people working together uh, on a common goal. And it was it was cool to hear from so many of them across the world. Yeah, it's great. And it's just it's amazing. You know, there's so many if you go to the website and you look at any of the webinars or or, uh, listen to any of them. Everybody, anytime we call someone and said, hey, you know, we want to do a webinar on research or we want to do something on advocacy or how are you dealing with coronavirus, no one said no. No matter what the time zone was, (laughs) nobody said no. And I think that just says a lot about our community. It makes me very proud to do the work that we do together. That is a great segue into our conversation with Nick Goldup for our third and final segment. As part of our conversations around the work of the International Alliance of ALS-MND Associations, we're on the phone today with Nick Goldup, the Director of Care Improvement at the Motor Neuron Disease Association in the UK. Hello to you, Nick, and thanks for making the time difference work to be with us on the podcast. No problem at all. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So for starters, Connecting ALS is the podcast of the ALS Association here in the United States. And I think our audience would really be curious to hear about how MNDA operates over there. Nick, can you give a bit of background on the Motor Neuron Disease Association and your role there in the UK? Yeah, no problem at all. So my role is Director of of Care Improvement, and I'm responsible for our, our Care Director at the MND Association. When I say MND, we, we are kind of an umbrella term MND, so we support all sorts of people with similar conditions, but mainly MND and, and ALS. 
and Kennedy's mm-hmm. disease as well, just, just, just so that you know, that's clear. We're the only charity in England, Wales and Northern Ireland supporting people living with MND. And we've got three main areas of focus. Firstly is improving care. Secondly, improving research and investing into research. And campaigning is our, our third sort of column. Consistency of care is something that ALS and MND associations around the world are striving for. Obviously, availability of resources, things like durable medical equipment, speech generating devices, that that varies from country to country and, and even within countries. What sort of conversations are you having with some of your international peers and colleagues around the world about global standards of care? Yeah, I mean, consistency of care really does differ, doesn't it? And I'm a member, I represent the MND Association at the International Alliance as a director there, and that's really opened my eyes to this. And, you know, every country has its own opportunities and issues with regards to their health system and depending on their structure and wealth and, you know, economic background. And an example of that would be from an international perspective, the International Alliance has really helped provide equipment to different parts of the world. So the wheelchairs to South America, which was just an amazing thing, but it, do, it doesn't fix, it doesn't fix the problem. So even so-called, so-called developed countries still have their health and social care issues. And, and in the UK, we've worked for many years with uh, the health system here to produce some guidelines with the, the National Institute of Care here to set out, you know, what good looks like for people living with MND and ALS. And, and that means basically multidisciplinary coordinated care across health and social social care needs. We're a long way ahead of many organisations and many countries, and yet the charity sector in the UK still has to fund part of this element. So I think internationally, the conversations we're having is, you know, we have to raise awareness of what good looks like for people. We have to lobby, we have to advocate best practice. And I think we have to support each other, especially in this, you know, the increased pressures that we're all going through with the coronavirus epidemic, you know, being there for each other and supporting what good looks like internationally is, is, is really key. Yeah, sharing that information and opening up the communication lines about here's what's working for us, where we're at, tell us what you need and how we can help you. And it's, it's great to see the work that the Alliance is doing along those lines. And we spoke with Kathy Cummings at the Alliance, and she told us, that you in particular, Nick, are, are doing some really incredible things with technology and speech generation. And as technology rapidly advances, we're seeing some of those advancements being made on the synthetic speech generation side. Can you tell us a little bit about the progress that, that you've made in that space? Mm, yeah, I mean, this is a bit of a passion of mine, really. I think there's such opportunity utilizing technology. Back in 2019, I was approached by a technology company, a gentleman at Rolls-Royce, who his father had passed away from, from MND mm. and was really keen to do something back, give something back to the community. And, um, you know, when Rolls Royce come knocking at your door, you, you don't send them, you don't send them away. Right. Um, right. <laughs> so we, uh, we worked with them and we set up a think tank using all of their supply chain. And, and when I talk about supply chain, I'm talking, you know, Google around the table, Dell, Microsoft, Intel. Uh, wow. It was just a, a who's who of tech companies. And I suppose the problem that you have is there's so much opportunity. Where do you focus? And mm. we really wanted to focus on speech. And I, and I suppose I answered two questions. One was, you know, what if we could help people talk for longer than is possible? And what if people could communicate using a device at a speed that was closer to their natural conversation? And I mean, in terms of why speech as well, because I mean, 90% of people living with them and DNA eventually rely on a device for communication. And so right. it felt as if, you know, you know, speech is, is where people get a sense of self and mood and humor and its personality. So how can we how can we support that? And, and I'll, I'll just 
talk about the two projects that we focused on. But one is working alongside Google, and you'll know of Google Assistant, of course, which is a virtual mm-hmm. assistant. Five hundred million people use it across their smartphones and TVs, and you know I think there's a billion devices with it around the world. So mm-hmm. what what if what if we could train Google Assistant to understand people that have had a dysarthric speech, slurred speech? And so we're working with Google to, to improve the algorithms behind that to make sure that is, that is happening. And um, there's a project called Project Euphonia, which is all about training Google Assistant. So that, that's the first bit. That's, you know, if you think about someone's journey with ALS and MND, they, that's when they started to lose their voice and, how, and they can still use it. So then yeah. when somebody becomes locked in, we wanted to use artificial intelligence to bring speech as close to natural speech as possible. And the way we're doing that is Rolls-Royce have produced a piece of software that we're calling Quips, and it listens to a conversation, and then it will come up as a prompt on your device, and it will say, you know, normally in this situation you would say this, and it would have mm. various different emotions, and it would allow someone to be able to communicate, kind of like a, like a, a, a satellite navigation in your car. It will pop up with different op- options, and it will learn every day. And you know, wow. we, we're just at the point where we've got a working prototype, and I'm just working with Microsoft and Rolls Royce to try and move it onto that next step to get it available to people, which we're hoping will be in in the next twelve months or so. Oh, that's incredible! Wow. That's a that's a yeah, it really that a game changer. Oh, it could. And then there's so many issues that people you know face, and you know the other one I, I'm really really keen to, to solve is when you use eye gaze to, to on your lap, you know, on your laptop or on your device. If you're outside in the sunlight, it's really difficult. It doesn't pick it up. So what if mm. we could solve that problem for people? So there's, there's 101 different problems to solve. So. <laughs> no, that's amazing that, that, that that's what you're working towards. Yeah, it really is. Um, just to hear the ways that technology can come into play like that. You, Nick, you mentioned earlier the role of raising awareness. Can you talk a little bit about how the International Alliance of ALS MND Associations is helping to raise awareness of the disease around the world? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, within the the Articles of Association for the the Alliance, advancing the education of MND and ALS within the public is one of our kind of core elements. So it's it's up there, and the Alliance is made up of, of members who are, who are country associations, and so we have a really unique voice and really not unique opportunity to to shout about this um, at all sorts of levels. And I think probably the way to think about it is that we we build a global community firstly. So we can identify and promote and support meaningful in-person virtual connections and build our membership across the world and be the kind of the gateway for relevant external stakeholders and coordinate the global voice for, for pals and cows, you know, for uh, patients and, and carers. So that's a really unique mix, really unique opportunity to really shout about the problems that people face globally. Then it's about building the capability and you know we get feedback from people we encourage membership members to exchange knowledge and facilitate facilitate debates we have professional development so we have annual meetings and webinars and round tables that we've started this year kathy our chief exec has just been a wonderful breath of fresh air making some of this happen in the last 12 months and specifically as well over the coronavirus crisis and we've set up some advisory groups so we've got a scientific advisory group of pals and cows advisory group and a, and a technology one and I suppose finally the big one for me the big opportunity I think is about really getting in front of people like the international organizations such as the World Health Organization and, and really shouting mm-hmm. about the requirements of people globally. Yeah it's it's so important to make sure that those living with uh, MND and ALS have 
a voice and that they are represented and that their, their concerns and needs are heard around the world. And we're fortunate that the Alliance exists and that there's people like you working towards that goal. You just said the coronavirus and obviously the pandemic has changed a lot about how we're currently living and it's definitely impacting care and support delivery for those living with MND ALS. Are there things that you've learned uh, since the pandemic began and, and have discovered about care delivery options that you think will actually maybe benefit us in the future or things like telehealth or anything in that realm? Yeah, yeah, the, uh, without a doubt. It's a funny old world that we're living in at the moment, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. There's no doubt that we've learned. And I think we've learned some, there's some worries and there's positives. So perhaps I'll focus on the first and then come to the positive. Right. <laughs> finish, finish on a positive. I, I think especially within the UK, we've got a national health service and there's no doubt that they've worked extremely hard to you know, support people with the coronavirus at a time when people still have their needs with other conditions. And there's no doubt that there's going to be a huge pressure and, uh, and backlog as we come out of the, of the crisis and the emerging issues around diagnosis and you know, ne- neurological referrals and access to services, access to speech devices and non-invasive ventilation and wheelchairs. And, you know, I heard a story the other day in the UK that one service was having about 50% of the referral rate that they had previously before the crisis. Mm. So there's, there's going to be a backlog and, and that will put pressure on. But then you mentioned telehealth. Tele, I think telehealth has good and bad aspects. I think, you know, if you think about somebody who's really struggling to get out of their house or to get into a clinic, it, there's no doubt that telehealth is, is brilliant. It's, it's going to really change things. And you know mm-hmm. virtual connections, but there's probably two groups of people I think will find it difficult. Newly diagnosed, so having a diagnosis virtually is just not the way to do it, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and at the end of life, and you know, I think there'll be different pressures on those two two groups, really. Oh, that's a good point. But I think, yeah, and then you know, the support and in terms of people's support at home is going to be under pressure. Um, unpaid carers is a big burden on on unpaid carers and on domiciliary care as well and getting hold of people you know protective equipment and transport so there's a whole host of things i think we'll learn and, and in the uk we've got brexit shouldn't shouldn't mention that don't mention, <laughs> don't mention the b-word and and then the, <laughs> the worries of a second wave as well i guess yeah so but i think in terms of the positives then i think you know the speed of learning and change has just been tremendous and i think in terms in terms of the way we we reacted to the crisis globally but also within the uk it's just been unbelievable we, we in the association rewrote us rewrote a strategy and redeployed over 60 staff and you know really took the pandemic on and reacted very quickly so i i hope that that's a learning for the future why aren't we more impatient right um, i think secondly is virtual support and the thing for me here is i don't think it means that you know proximity is not essential we can provide more of an equal care to people across a wider geographical area because we can do it virtually. I think mm. that's probably quite a learning. Um, yeah. I think our services will. I think our services will change as well. You know, our helpline, for example, we're being much more proactive. We're calling people rather than waiting for calls to come to us. And the way we use volunteers to support um, people like carers, you know, there's a, there's a different model there that we can use to go forward that we've learned from. And then I think finally communication. You know, and the way we've engaged with healthcare professionals, we've got a new expert panel that we use in the UK, and we've got vlogs that we've been writing, doing them with webinars and podcasts and all sorts of things. 
that perhaps wouldn't have moved so quickly if we hadn't gone through this this um, crisis that we faced. Oh, that's a that's a really good point, and it's uh, it's pretty interesting to see the way that necessity is driving those changes and, and teaching us new things and the resiliency not only of the ALSMND population but the global population and of course we would hope that this coronavirus crisis comes to an end sooner than later but as long as we're here it's good to know that groups like yours and the ALS Association here in the United States are always thinking about ways to improve care and adapt for those that we serve well, thanks so much again uh, to Nick Goldup, the Director of Care Improvement at the MNDA in the UK. Uh, really appreciate your time and, and insight on this topic, Nick. No problem. Thanks for having me. Colonit Balas, uh, thank you again for helping us frame and for adding to these conversations today. And uh, beyond that, of course, thank you for your tireless efforts at the helm of the ALS Association and uh, your leadership at the International Alliance of ALS MND Associations. Well, thank you. And, and thank you for, for having me back and, and really for highlighting the work that so many people are doing and, and the good people who are in the fight every day, just like you and I. So thank you very much and you have a good one. That will wrap up what was an action-packed episode of Connecting ALS. So much great information shared from our friends at the International Alliance of ALS MND Associations. Thank you again to all of our guests for their insight and for everything that they do to build a world without ALS. You can stream and download new episodes of Connecting ALS at connectingals.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter as well for all of the latest content. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening, and we will connect with you again next week. 